Well, for those of you who don't know, my name is Rick Gerhardt. I'm one of the elders here at Antioch. Uh, I also have the privilege of uh, teaching several classes at Kilns College. And uh, by day and night, I'm a research biologist uh, specializing in eagles and owls and other birds of prey. And normally when I get to fill the pulpit, uh, metaphorically, um, Ken allows me to speak on whatever I'd like. Uh, but in this case, he actually chose the topic. And the topic for, for what I want to share with you this morning is why believe. So uh, Sunday in and Sunday out, when Ken preaches to you, he, he begins by assuming the truth of, of Christian belief. He doesn't take the time each week to, to ground why we're doing this in the evidence and the reason for believing in Christianity. So I think what he wanted me to do was take one week out to just to do that, to, to ground the fact that, that we're following hard after Christ in the recognition that it's the truth about the world in which we actually live. So in, in case I don't say it very clearly later on in the talk, we do what we do here at Antioch, not because we happen to be born in a Christian country not because we were raised in Christian circles, but because we believe that Christianity is the uniquely accurate understanding of the real world in which all of us live. Atheist, Buddhist, uh, whatever. It's, it's the accurate understanding of the world. And so, so that's what I want to talk about today. And, and of course, this is an impossible task. I, I spend whole courses at the college sharing what I want to dump on you this morning. So I'm going to have to boil it all down to the uh, two hours they've given me uh, this morning. <laughs> Actually, I thought there'd be a clock up here counting down, but I don't see one. So it's going to even be even better than the center referee in those soccer games. I'm not even going to have a clock telling me when the 90's up, and then I can, at my own discretion, add minutes to it anyway, Okay. So really what we're talking about is, is referred to as apologetics. Uh, and apologetics are just uh, providing a uh, reasoned formulation and a winsome presentation of a rational defense of the Christian world and life view. Um, several years ago, before there was any justice conferences, we actually had a couple of apologetics conferences, two annual apologetics conferences here in Bend. And... Uh, and Ken and I and Mike Saba and a couple of high-powered experts from around the country actually came and uh, discussed these issues, the variety of different issues, uh, objections raised against Christianity in our modern culture and that sort of thing. But many of you weren't here or didn't even live in Central Oregon at that time. So, so what this morning is is really just a, an apologetics booster shot for, for the folk of Antioch, Okay. The word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which is found in 1 Peter 3.15, which says, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, that's apologia, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Okay? So that's what we're talking about today. And, and right at the front, I need to clarify what we mean when we talk about belief. Because normally in, in general society, when we talk about beliefs, we're talking really about uh, mental assent to a particular idea. You have beliefs, I have beliefs. We have those beliefs whether we're thinking about them at the time or not. Sometimes those beliefs change in light of new information, new evidence. Um, but we're talking about mental agreement with a particular idea. The problem comes in that most of the time, belief and faith in scripture is not that same sort of thing. Um, in fact, the Greek word pisteo, which is normally translated belief in the English of, of our New Testaments, really doesn't have so much uh, a sense of credence or, or assent, mental assent, but more a, a, whole, a wholehearted reliance upon uh, the good news of the gospel. Okay, so, so we have a little bit of a misunderstanding right there, and, and it leads to misunderstanding as we talk to unbelievers. Uh, and oftentimes we as Christians tend to wrongly portray Christianity as being really just all about assenting to a particular set of, of claims, right? But in Scripture, 
belief, and, and in particular saving belief or saving faith, is a whole lot more robust than that. So the historical Christian understanding of saving belief or saving faith has three components to it. And the first component is simply, uh, well, it, what, what's referred to in the uh, Latin as notitia. Notitia means right knowledge. And in regards to saving faith, that right knowledge is about God and his nature as a holy omnipotent being, uh, who we are and our sin problem, uh, and, and how that's distanced us from God so that we can't have relationship with him. And then right knowledge about God's solution and provision in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's the right knowledge that is the first component of saving Christian belief. The second component is just uh, what's referred to as a sensus, which simply means agreement. So I, I not only have right knowledge, but I agree that that's the truth about the world, that there is a God who, who, who died on the cross. Um, so that's kind of the mental ascent piece, but that's not all, because as we read in James 2.19, I think it is, even the demons know who God is. So every time Jesus was in a crowd and there was a demon that he came in contact with, even if the disciples to which he was pouring out their, his life were kind of unsure still about who he was, the demons knew and called him by name, the, the, son, the divine son of God. So, so if you just have those first two components of right belief, that's not saving belief. The third component is what's known as fiducia, which is that, that Greek pisteo concept of wholehearted trust in the truth that you agree with, okay? So saving faith, far from being the blind leap that our culture and, and sometimes we are, as Christians have, have characterized it as, is really the only rational, reasonable, logical step based on the truth with which we agree, okay? So, um, Let's not misunderstand and certainly let's not misarticulate what the Bible means when it talks about belief. Uh, another area in which this comes into a problem is that there are many Christians who tend to think that somehow our faith is more spiritual or, or more pure if in fact it's, it's, it's not based in evidence and reason but, but somewhat blind. And I think this comes from pulling a particular verse out of Scripture, uh, out of its context, and that's uh, in, in the end of John 20. So we're getting near the end of John's Gospel. Jesus has already risen from the dead and, and appeared to many of the disciples, but in each case, Thomas had not been with them. And so when he talked to the other disciples about Jesus rising from the dead, he said, well, hey, and, until I see the marks in his hands, and, and the sword scar in his side, I'm not going to believe. Well, at this point, Jesus does come face to face with Thomas. And he says to them, he says to Thomas in somewhat of a mild rebuke, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And we modern Christians tend to look at that and say, Oh, well, my, my faith is even better if I don't have reason or evidence supporting him. Now, that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, Thomas, you, you required an extraordinary amount of evidence. You were with me for three years, during part of which time I told you this would happen. You, you talked to your brothers about seeing me, and you still didn't believe. You saw the miracles I did all along. Why can't you believe in this miracle? Shame on you. But the real reason I know that Jesus did not have in mind glorifying some sort of blind faith without evidence is that the very next passage of John tells us John's motivation for writing about Jesus' miracles in the first place. He says in verses 29, I'm sorry, in verses 30 and 31, now Jesus did many other signs, evidence, in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's whole enterprise was to lay out evidence which would cause his Jewish fellows 
to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, to believe in the, res- the power of the resurrection, and to come to faith in Christ. So nowhere in Scripture does it glorify an evidenceless, reasonless faith. So that's why I'm going to talk more about today about why all the evidence and all the reason supports the Christian worldview as the, the accurate one of this world. Um, let me get one more thing out of the way, and that is just the definition of knowledge. So we've talked about belief generally as a, as a mental assent. Knowledge is usually defined by philosophers as properly justified true belief. Okay? So let me take the true part. So we have a lot of beliefs. Some are true and some are not. To count as knowledge, it has to be a true belief. Um, now, there, there are things, there are beliefs that really do affect reality. But for the most part, it's reality that determines whether a belief is true or not. Okay? Uh, when Bubba Watson pulled off an incredible shot out of the woods on the 17th hole in the last round of the 2012 Masters, he had to first believe that he could get that ball on the green. And in fact, a good golfer actually not only believes he can pull off the shot, but visualizes it happening and how many times it's going to bounce before it rolls and all that sort of thing. And so in that case, belief affects reality. But when we're talking about the existence of an eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, uh, transcendent God, our beliefs about him don't change reality at all, okay? So if I don't believe in such a God and he really does exist, my disbelief doesn't change his existence. In the same way, if he really doesn't exist, my belief in him doesn't bring him into being, okay? So so that addresses the kind of postmodern religious pluralism of our day that says, as long as you believe, that's good. It doesn't matter what you believe. No, when we're talking about things like God's existence and, and nature, it really does matter what the reality is, and our beliefs have, very, have, have no effect on that, okay? So the historical Christian formulation of uh, the answer to the question, how do we know God exists, is because he has revealed himself to us. And the historical Christian understanding is that he has revealed himself to us in two sets of ways. And we refer to these as general revelation and special revelation. So special revelation is his direct involvement in human history and in human lives, as in the prophets and the psalmist and such. It includes his incarnation, where the second person of the Godhead came down and showed us what God is like directly. And special revelation includes the Holy Spirit-inspired recording of all those things, which is what we call Scripture, okay? Special revelation. But the other category, general revelation, is what God has chosen to reveal to all people of all ages, regardless of whether they had this book or not. And so general revelation is the evidence available to all people through the creation itself, through our human consciousness, through our human conscience, which tells us about right and wrong and holy and unholy and those sorts of things. And it's available to all people. So that, in fact, it's not that we didn't come to belief in Jesus Christ, according to Scripture. It's not that that causes God to condemn some to eternal punishment. Instead, it's the rejection of those people of the evidence for God that they had all along. In Romans uh, 1, 18 through 20, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They have the truth, but they suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So it turns out 
while we can argue with the unbeliever about the existence of God, it turns out that we all know there's a God, that the world around us leads us to that recognition, and that to, to today come to the conclusion that God doesn't exist he, and, and I can live my life without reference to him, that I popped into being without a creator, involves a suppression of the truth that, that I used to know, okay? But that doesn't get you a lot when, you, when you're conversing with someone. So apologetics is really about taking away the intellectual objections that that person is raising and, and boiling it down to rebellion or whatever else is at the core of, of his heart. Okay. So with that, I think we've talked enough about belief and knowledge to, to move on to uh, why, why should you believe? Why should I believe that Christianity is the, the uniquely accurate understanding of the world in which we all live? And, um, and I'm going to try to give you a, a, a view from 30,000 feet of, of the history of Western thought and, and lay out four different apologetics approaches, four different ways of, of convincing people that Christianity is true. And I'm really going to do it with reference to one alternative view that's popular in our culture today. So I'm not really addressing, uh, you know, uh, Buddhism or pantheism or a whole lot of other religious views. I'm, I'm going to address most of my comments to the, the view that's popular in our culture today, and that's known as scientific naturalism. So scientific naturalism basically says, you know, science has been so good at discovering so much about the universe, uh, so many physical processes we've identified and, and laws and such, without reference to God, that we can just conclude that there is no God behind those laws and things like that. So a scientific naturalism uh, a scientific naturalist tends also to be a physicalist that is denying not only God and, and spiritual beings like demons and angels, but also denying anything immaterial like minds and souls and things like that. Again, uh, grounding that belief in the idea that science has been successful at, at discovering a lot about the universe. Okay? Um, Back to the definition of knowledge, properly justified true belief. So what counts as proper justification for knowing something? Well, on a scientific naturalist view, the only reliable source of knowledge is scientific testing. Okay? Now, any philosopher could tell you that that claim is, is just bogus. Most of what you know you know without having done scientific testing yourself. So, so we scientists have tended to jump from a fairly useful, practical approach to doing our, our biology or our geology or our astronomy to a metaphysical claim that we have no justification for, for making, okay? But that's what scientific naturalists uh, do and, and that's what naturalism claims. So on the other hand, if we look at Scripture, it places great emphasis on the truth, not only of the existence of God. You know, our Bibles never take any time to lay out evidence for the existence of God. It is, our Bible assumes that. It's God's revelation to us. So it, its starting point is, I am, and you need to know a little more about me. Um, but... When it comes to the very specific core truth at the heart of Christianity, and that is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Paul makes it very plain in his letter to the Corinthian church that everything Christian hinges upon the truth of that claim. He says in, uh, in verses 17 and 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So really, when we come to the topic of why believe, we really have two options before us in, in Bend, Oregon in this day and age. And that is, is the scientific naturalist correct in thinking that the cosmos is all there is or was or ever will be? Or do we live in a world that was fundamentally changed 
when the creator God came down himself as a man, died a death in our place, and then was raised from the dead to verify his, his authority and, and who he was. Which of those two more accurately describes the world in which we all live today in Bend, Oregon? Okay. Um, so, so the first approach to... Uh, how should I do this? So, so I want to make it clear, first of all, that a, a perfect, perfectly good proper justification for your knowing that Christ rose from the dead is that you have a very intimate, personal relationship with him. Okay? And for many of you here, that experience, that personal experience, is all you need to know that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and you don't maybe care one whit about reconciling that fact with the latest discoveries from cosmology about the beginning of the universe or, or the latest claims being made uh, from, you know, first century Jewish archaeology and that sort of thing. Because you know full well that Jesus rose from the dead because you have a relationship with him, right? That is perfectly good justification to count as knowledge, knowledge of Jesus' rising, okay? But do you see that as an apologetic to your unbelieving neighbor that that doesn't get anywhere? In fact, that's all the Mormons have. If, if you ask a Mormon, why should I believe your Book of Mormon, they'll say things like, well, pray about it and you'll get a burning in your bosom. And that'll, that'll verify the truth of Mormonism. Christianity has so much more than that. It turns out that the Book of Mormon has all sorts of claims that ought to be verifiable or falsifiable through archaeology here in the Americas. And there's not one shred of evidence for those claims. So, so if we approach our unbelieving neighbor and just say, well, look at me, He's, Christ lives in my heart, that, that's not really a very good apologetic. And yet it is deemed an apologetic approach. We refer to this view as fideism. And, and it's really just the view that a, a person is not going to come to understand and comprehend the core truths of Christianity until they first take a leap of faith, if you will. And this would, would have been the view of the very influential early 20th century Christian thinker Karl Barth. So he would say, you know, you're wasting your time talking to the unbeliever. They need to first take a leap of faith, and then the truth will dawn upon them, okay? Most other apologists would recognize fideism not, not so much as an apologetic approach, but as an anti-apologetic. But that doesn't take away from the fact if that's where you are, your personal experience of Christ is a perfectly legitimate for you, okay? It just won't get very far with your neighbors. So uh, a second approach to apologetics that has, has had a long history in, in philosophy and Western thought generally is what's called classical apologetics. And, and so this is use, the use of logic and deductive reasoning to prove the existence of God and, and the nature of God, the existence of the, Christian, of the triune God of Christianity uh, from dedu using deductive principles. Uh, alongside of that is a second approach, or a third approach, and that would be evidential apologetics. So evidential apologetics points to evidence from the universe that supports a theistic and a Christian view of the world in which we live. And these two, classical apologetics and evidential apologetics, really play hand in hand. Um, and, and let me show you three examples of, of arguments. These, these are really classical apologetics arguments, but each one of them has evidential support as well. So uh, the first one would be the moral argument. And the moral argument just says, and has always said for hundreds of years now among philosophers, that if there really is right and wrong, if, if the concepts that we use every day of oughtness and fairness and injustice and justice and, and right and wrong, if any of these terms make any sense and, and can be applied to all people all, you know, at all places, then there must be some lawgiver 
that transcends humanity in which this oughtness is based. Okay, does that make sense? Now the, now the modern, in our culture, the postmodern um, approach to rejecting God involves trying to claim that, that everybody makes up their own morality, that, that there really isn't anything that's universally wrong. But, but that really doesn't fly. It turns out that, that all of our political discourse, all of our uh, lawmaking is really based on this fundamental concept that there really is some things that are right and some things that are wrong. Um, our country in particular was founded upon this belief that connected the dots not only between, connected the dots between morality and the lawgiver. The preamble to our constitution says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That's what our founding fathers believed and that's, that's where we got the democracy, the republic that we live in today. Um, uh, maybe I have a little time for a, a, side, a side tangent. Um, for some reason it's popular today as in the, the, the new atheist Richard Dawkins to claim that, our founding father, that the founding fathers of the United States really weren't strong Christians, that somehow they were deists, you know, they believed in a God but not in a personal God, and, and that in fact they were intelligent enough that if they lived today they'd be atheists like he is. Okay, now I, I don't, there's really no logical, it's a non sequitur, the conclusion that he wants you to arrive at doesn't follow from the evidence if, even if it really were legit. But, but the fact of the matter is that the the, uh, the makeup of the Founding Fathers, that group of 55 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, the makeup of those men is a, a matter of record. We, we know who they were. And 28 of them were Episcopalians, 8 of them were Presbyterians, there were 7 Congregationalists, 2 Lutherans, 2 Dutch Reformed, 2 Methodists, 2 Roman Catholics, 1 we don't know about, and then there were probably three of them that were, in fact, deists. And this was, a, this was at a time when church membership entailed strict uh, swearing to a set of beliefs of that church. So this idea that, that our founding fathers were, were deists, you know, on their way to being intellectual atheists, really, really doesn't fly, okay? That, that's just gravy. That's bonus material there. Um, <laughs> So the other two arguments I want to talk about, the cosmological argument and the teleological or the design argument, because these are areas in, so let me back up a minute. So this idea of scientific naturalism really came about 160 years ago with the publication of Darwin's theory of evolution, the origin of species, okay? In fact, Richard Dawkins says it very clearly Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Okay, what he means by that is that naturalism never had any track record. There were early Greek scientists before the time of Christ who, who kind of were naturalists themselves. But naturalism never got any traction because it just really didn't jive with human experience. It didn't ground the scientific enterprise. Uh, it, it, it made nonsense of these moral concepts like justice and injustice. Naturalism never got off the ground. But then Darwin came along and offered a, a hypothetical explanation that was naturalistic, purely physical, for one thing, and that was the diversity of life as seen today and in the fossil record. And in, in the minds of folks like Richard Dawkins, that was enough to run with even though it, it didn't involve an explanation of why there's a universe or how first life came to be or why, there's, uh, why the parameters of the universe are such that life's even possible or where consciousness came from or where morality came from. It didn't explain any of the big questions for science, but it was enough to, to kick God out of science and 160 year, years later to have most scientists act as though they've somehow disproved the existence of God. Okay. Now, when Darwin wrote The Origin of Species, the belief was that the universe was itself 
an eternal being. So in, in trying to explain the existence of the universe, there's really only two choices. One is that the universe itself has always been here and is just a brute fact. And that was the belief in, for many in Darwin's day. But the other is that, no, the universe came into being and that requires that there be a transcendent, necessary, everlasting, self-existent being, powerful and, and loving enough to create a universe. And that's always been the philosophical debate throughout Western history. And the cosmological argument has been that series of arguments that show why that option, a god creating the universe, is the right option, and that a self-existent universe is, is not an option. And that proof has always been powerful, though there's always been those who would deny God's existence by saying, well, you can't prove to me that the universe hasn't always been here. Well, the greatest scientific discovery of the 20th century was that, in fact, the universe had a beginning. Um, and, and so there's no cosmologist, astronomer, physicist today who would continue to claim that the universe has always been here. Now, there's, there's appeals to things like infinite multiverses that, that attempt to do the same thing, but those are not really, those are supernatural appeals of their own, so they really don't support naturalism as, as it's being claimed today. Um, along with that, there's been the, the discovery in the last several decades that the universe, uh, many, many aspects, so over a hundred characteristics of the universe as a whole, things like the, the force of the, the particular uh, measurement of the force of gravity and of the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force, the fundamental characteristics of the universe that apply throughout the universe are exactly what they would have to be to make life possible anywhere in the universe. And another set of evidences is such that there, there's more than 700 characteristics of our local planet and solar system and galaxy that are likewise finely tuned exactly what they ought to be if there was an intention to have life somewhere, to have life here, okay? So when you read in the newspaper uh, a popular science article about how they've discovered another planet that is in just the right zone to have had water at some time in its history, that's an attempt by scientific naturalists to undermine the teleological argument, but an attempt that simply chooses to ignore 700 other characteristics identified to date besides potential water that are required for life on Earth, okay? So, so let me read a few uh, quotes from some scientists on that, that, that address these two discoveries, all of which support the cosmological and teleological arguments um, for God's existence, and specifically the God of Christianity. Um, first of all, uh, cosmologist Sir Arthur Eddington, who, who was at pains to disprove the Big Bang beginning to the universe by alternate theories like the steady state model or the oscillating universe model, he was, he was forthright and open. He said, philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the present order of nature is repugnant to me. I should like to find a genuine loophole we must allow evolution an infinite time to get started, as Darwin believed, okay? Um, so this is uh, astronomer and pastor Hugh Ross. says, atheism, Darwinism, and virtually all of the isms emanating from the 18th to 20th century philosophies are built upon the assumption, the incorrect assumption it turns out, that the universe is infinite. So when you put these two, these sets of evidences, these, these arguably the two most important discoveries of the 20th century, the beginning to the universe and what's called now the anthropic principle, the idea that the universe was designed for intelligent beings like man, anthropos, these quotes address uh, kind of both of those together. Astronomer George Greenspan, as we survey all the evidence, the thought insistently arises that some supernatural agency, 
or rather capital A agency, must be involved. Is it possible that suddenly, without intending to, we have stumbled upon scientific proof of the existence of a supreme being? Was it God who stepped in and so providentially crafted the cosmos for our benefit? Um, well, let me mention William Paley. So prior to Darwin and prior to... So in the 17th century, there was a, a theologian, William Paley, whose design argument was uh, probably the best articulated of the, the third form there, the teleological argument. Basically, he said that if I'm walking across the heath and I pick up a stone that's got some funny curves in it and stuff, I'm, I'm justified in thinking that rain and water and other natural forces may have made that stone what it is today. But if I'm walking across that same heath and I pick up a stopwatch and I recognize the intricacies and the, and the purpose of that watch, I'd be foolish to think that, that it was natural causes. There must be a mind and intelligence behind that watch. And Paley's claim was that the earth and the things in the world are like the watch. They're evidence of design. Now, that was refuted by others at the time. Part of the problem was that Paley used some, some dubious examples of, of living things that, uh, for his design. But, but William Paley was considered, especially by scientific naturalists, to have been refuted in, in the 18th century. I have to bring that up because he comes in here in some of these other quotes. So astrophysicists Sir Fred Hoyle and Chandra Wick Wick Ramasing, the speculations of the origin of species turned out to be wrong. It is ironic that the scientific facts that we've just been talking about throw Darwin out but leave William Paley, a figure of fun to the scientific world for more than a century, still in the tournament with a chance of being the ultimate winner. Uh, Stephen Hawking, arguably the, the greatest mind of my generation, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way, except as the act of a god who intended to create beings like us. Cosmologist Edward Harrison, and, and a lot of these guys aren't Christians or, or even believers in God. They're just being frank with what the evidence shows them. Here's the cosmological proof of the existence of God, the design argument of Paley, updated and refurbished. The fine-tuning of the universe provides prima facie evidence of deistic design. Take your choice, blind chance that requires multitudes of universes or design that requires only one. Many scientists, when they admit their views, inclined, inclined toward the teleological or design argument. Uh, physicist Vera Kitskiowski, the exquisite order displayed by our scientific understanding of the physical world calls for the divine. Nobel Prize winner Arno Penzias, Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the conditions required to permit life, and one which has an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. So, to boil it all down, all of the evidence today available to us more strongly supports the Christian view of the world than at any time in, in history, and certainly more than 18th century uh, understanding. And yet what's happened in the interim is, is that there's a philosophy that has invaded science that, that denies the existence of God. And that doesn't have any evidence or argument in its favor except by pointing to the fact that, we, that science put the man on the moon and, and science cured this and that disease and that sort of thing. But there's no real evidence or argument that supports this view. And yet as a culture, we have so come to uh, glorify science that whatever scientist says, no matter how uneducated he is in things philosophical and things historical, we, we tend to give him credence, okay? But the fact is that all of the evidence available to us, supports a Christian understanding of the world. There's a couple of Psalms that begin with the words, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The, the program of scientific naturalism today is to look at the world around us and wherever we see design, to claim that, oh, that, that's just apparent design. 
natural selection did that, or, or what have you. To, to, to recognize design, but then kid yourself into believing that it's, it's not purposeful or it's only apparent. And in the past several decades especially, our technologies and our new equipment has enabled us to look at aspects of the universe at scales that were unimaginable even 30 years ago. And at every level that opens up to us by God's grace, what we see, the, the defining characteristic of every level of the universe in which we live is design and purpose with a loving designer behind it. And so the modern scientific naturalist who says there is no God is a greater fool than any who have ever lived because there's so much more evidence available to them. Now the fourth, uh, the fourth form of argument of, of uh, apologetics is what's called presuppositional apologetics. <clears throat> and presuppositional apologetics, this is where I want to camp for the remainder of the time, and, and that is really uh, recognizing and placing importance upon uh, what assumptions or presuppositions we bring to the table. So for instance, uh, I said I wouldn't do this, but let me, let me address Hinduism for a minute. So the person arguing for Hinduism would say that the, the, reason, you, the reason you Westerners talk about logic and support your Christianity with logical, deductive type arguments is because you're, you're confined to a Western sort of logic. Eastern logic isn't like that. In fact, Eastern logic uh, glorifies the absurd and the illogical. And, and that's why you should consider rejecting Christianity and, and log Western logic in favor of Hinduism and, and Eastern logic. The problem is to make that argument involves using Western logic, okay? Logic is one of those things, like mathematics, that is a fundamental aspect of the world in which we live. We've discovered the principles of logic and of mathematics. We haven't created them or, or, or made them, okay? Uh, another way of putting it is that the atheist scientist can do mathematics, he, he may be able to do mathematics a whole lot better than some of us, right? The atheist can count, but he cannot account for counting. The Christian worldview undergirds, provides a logical foundation for the existence of mathematics and of logic because the Christian worldview entails an incredible intellect creating it all, behind it all, okay? Now, very specifically, if we just look at science, you need to know that what we refer to as modern science, this unending progression that began in, in the 16th century Europe, was based on Christian principles. It was men reading their Bibles, recognizing that because this world is created by God, it ought to contain order that I could look for. And because I am a creature made in his image, that probably entails that I'll be able to recognize the order that he's put in this universe. And I could go on and on and, and refer to about two dozen assumptions that make science worthwhile that come from a Christian view of the world and that are either completely unsupported by or actually at odds with an evolutionary naturalist view of the world. So it turns out that the naturalist scientist today cannot even defend science as a worthwhile enterprise where the Christian can. So in that specific instance, what we've got is, is, is scientists only able to throw stones at Christianity because Christianity provided them the platform. Right? But it's much broader than that. And th by that I mean that it's Christianity that enables us to live in a democratic, relatively moral culture where we can take the time to throw stones back at Christianity. Okay? So think about 
the death of Jesus Christ. His disciples are in hiding, in fear, totally abandoned hope because the one that they thought was the Messiah was going to free them from Roman rule uh, is now dead. So we're talking about a, ca a very small nation, uneducated young men from a very small nation that had been captured by the mighty Roman Empire with all of their false gods and, and all their brutality and, and such. Who would have thought that those disciples would change the world? And yet the Roman Empire is long dead. We name our children after those disciples, John and James and Peter. And we name our dogs and cats after the Roman emperors, Nero and Caesar. <laughs> and it was Christianity, it was those disciples who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who recognized in that resurrection that the world had fundamentally changed and it was those Christians who spread that word across the globe, taking with them everywhere they went, literacy, so that people could read the word for themselves, and establishing hospitals and orphanages and democracies and modern science, and creating a culture in which we could even have these arguments about whether or not God exists, whether scientific naturalism is true or not, okay? So um, let me give you a couple more quotes. Uh, these, these two support the idea that, even, that science really can't uh, function, can't be grounded logically uh, without Christianity. The first one is Alvin Plantica, who is a Christian philosopher. Modern science was conceived and born and flourished in the matrix of Christian theism. Only liberal doses of self-deception and doublethink, I believe, will permit it to flourish in the context of Darwinian naturalism. This guy, Paul Davies, is not a, a Christian, but he's pretty forthright with the truth. People take it for granted that the physical world is both ordered and intelligible. The underlying order in nature, the laws of physics, are simply accepted as given as brute facts. Nobody asks where they came from, at least not in polite company. However, even the most atheistic scientist accepts as an act of faith that the universe is not absurd, that there is a rational basis to physical existence manifested as law-like order in nature that is at least partly comprehensible to us. So science can proceed only if the scientist adopts an essentially theological worldview. Okay? I think the person who said this, this best, this presuppositional, this, um, who, who articulated the fact that we can't even be having rational discussions unless cr the Christian view of the world is true, was C.S. Lewis. And, and so I'm going to read you a lengthy section. Many of you may have heard the last line of this, which is that I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Okay? But most of you probably didn't know the run-up to that, which is exactly what I've been talking about here. So let me read this to you, and then I'll close in prayer after that. I was taught at school when I had done a sum to prove my answer. The proof or verification of my Christian answer to the cosmic sum is this. When I accept theology, I may find difficulties at this point or that in harmonizing it with some particular truths which are embedded in the mythical cosmology derived from science meaning evolutionary naturalism. But I can get in or allow for science as a whole. Granted that reason, that's capital R reason, God, granted that reason is prior to matter and that the light of the primal reason illuminates finite minds, yours and mine, I can understand how men should come by observation and inference to know a lot about the universe they live in. If, on the other hand, I swallow, I swallow the scientific cosmology as a whole, then not only can I not fit in Christianity, but I cannot even fit in science. If minds are wholly dependent on brains and brains on biochemistry, and biochemistry in the long run on the meaningless flux of the atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. 
And this is to me the final test. This is how I distinguish dreaming and waking. When I am awake, I can in some degree account for and study my dream. The dragon that pursued me last night can be fitted into my waking world. I know that there are such things as dreams. I know that I had eaten an indigestible dinner. I know that a man of my reading might be expected to dream of dragons. But while in the nightmare, I could not have fitted in my waking experience. The waking world is judged more real because it can thus contain the dreaming world. The dreaming world is judged less real because it can contain the waking one. For the same reason, I am certain that in passing from the scientific points of view to the theological, I have passed from dream to waking. Christian theology can fit in science, art, morality, and the sub-Christian religions. The scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things, not even science itself. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. From 1944, uh, an essay he delivered to the Oxford Socratic Club. So again, I dumped a whole course worth of uh, information on you. I'll be here for Redux, the Q&A service that'll start 10 minutes after we're done worshiping here. Um, so come and, and ask questions about anything that I've said because I, I haven't been able to fully support all my claims. So let's, um, let's, let's close in prayer and then we'll have the offering. Oh, Creator God and Lord and Savior, we just uh, give you the glory this morning as we, as we think about your revelation to us as we think of the many ways in which you've uh, revealed our, yourself to us, and especially uh, by sending Jesus to die for our sins, by your raising of his, him from the dead so that we might know the truth of, of your resurrection power, that we would make room in our understanding of the miracles of Scripture because we know that this isn't just a physical world, but that you are real, and that you want relationship with us. We thank you even for the, the great discoveries of modern science that have undergirded the truth of, of your scriptures and of the Christian view of the world. And we pray that as we go about our days, as we interact with the unbelievers around us, that you would help us to be more attuned to the evidences and the reasons that we can share with them beyond the fact that you've made a transformational change in each of our lives. We do pray that that transformation in our own lives would be a, a, an attractive thing to those around us who don't yet know of your love for them. And we just pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit in all of our encounters, all of our words and deeds as we seek to be your followers and ambassadors to a dying world around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.